that if you keep telling people something untrue loud and long enough, they're apt to believe it. My name is Matthew Kroll. And I never thought one could care so much about a slid. My name is Shahir Dowd. Aw, nerds. I'm Izzy. (laughs) And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Mank. Mank. I don't know about you guys, but I re- for some reason I have the George of the Jungle song in my head, but replacing George with Mank. <laughs> so, I'm, so I've been walking around going all day going, Mank, Mank, Mank of the Jungle. Of the song Jungle. He can be. Yeah, I don't know why. I have no idea. <laughs> At I least no idea. change. Uh, Izzy, I'm so sorry that your introduction <laughs> got preempted by this, uh, by this literal monkey whose organ is grinding behind him. Welcome back to the show. That's what it was. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. And well, listen, we, we all are talking about this, the title of this movie in different ways, because I keep thinking of it as like all caps with an exclamation point. Yeah, like, exactly. Like Jeb, you know. <laughs> or like, or panic Mank. at the disco. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. it's, uh, uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a film, all right. <laughs> it's great to see you back. Um, how have you been? Like, this is what I'm really excited about is that um, we managed to get you three times in one year. First time was for Little Woman, second time was for Portrait of a Lady, and now we're back with Mank. Uh, the last time we saw you, the world was a very different place. Uh, and normally we would ask you what you've been watching, but instead <laughs> I'm just going to ask, how you doing? Oh, man, I feel very, very lucky. Um, yeah. You know, this has not been an easy time for a lot of people in this country, and I have been fortunate to keep my job and keep my health. So I just am very thankful for everything that's been in my life recently and really counting my blessings. Um, So I think overall I'm doing well, but I definitely miss, you know, the comforts of a theater, for example, or just hanging out with friends, all the, the simple things. But you've been keeping busy with the channel mm-hmm. as well as I have been happily watching along. Um, could you tell, I mean, like the last couple of things have been the 25 days of actresses. Mm-hmm. I, am I saying it correctly? I, I, can't, I can't recall. And, and I was excited to see Madhavi Mukherjee in there just uh, because that is one of my mom's favorite actresses. And I was like just excited. And I, I had completely forgotten about her until I saw her in your video. And I was like, oh my God, I got to talk to my mom about this. And um, so there's a lot in, in what you've been doing over the last year that's been just great to catch up with um i how is the channel going and how have you been feeling about now doing it under quarantine i guess you kind of you know you did it on your own anyway but now it's like enforced quarantine <laughs> right right yeah i, I mean the, i think the thing is when you don't have a personal life really to balance <laughs> everything out with it becomes a little more stressful um yeah. But but I also um, have been having a lot of fun with it, especially in the past month. It's been really busy trying to fit in multiple videos per month, which is what I'm doing this for December with this series. But at the same time, it's been a really refreshing change of pace because I'm not really doing an essay. It's just talking about actresses and performances that I love. And it's been it's allowed me to um, expand to, you know, talk about. Sachijit Rai and like all these different people that I normally um, haven't been able to talk to on talk about on my channel. So that's been just a really refreshing change of pace for me. Yeah, I uh, actually I'm, I'm sort of going on a Satyajit Rai. A uh, little bit, I, I got the Criterion Collection uh, of the Pata Panchali mm-hmm. uh, set. And then we had a sort of fun experience just with Criterion. This is a complete aside here, which is that my son seemed to have lost the first disc to Pata Panchali. <laughs> like, we don't know how, how it happened, but just like I went to open the box set and like it was gone suddenly. So I emailed Check the Criterion. Check the Into the Spider-Verse uh, <laughs> box. 
We don't own that actually. So, uh, uh, but I, I I emailed Criterion and I managed to get I think like a senior executive at the at the New York office who was like, yeah, I have a spare one lying around in the office. We'll send you a free copy. So I got an extra copy. That's and awesome. And then we we found the the missing disc and donated it to the library. Um, so uh, and I, and I finally saw Pat the Panchali for the first time um, just a few months ago, and it absolutely devastated me um what i mean i guess with that in mind like you know what's your quarantine watching habits been i really feel like i am just catching up on so many things that i feel like everybody else has already seen because um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i didn't i didn't go to film school so right. so much of my education has just been self-motivated and you know, slowly inching towards things that I like and trying to discover new things on my own. Um, yeah. So I've been trying to just cover a lot of the classics like Rye or, you know, uh, Fassbender I've really been digging into. I've been really, really into Japanese cinema recently, Ooh. trying to get into Neruza. Um, right. So I'm just trying to find a way into things that aren't necessarily super accessible unless you're privileged enough to have Criterion Channel um, <laughs> or like... Uh, speak multiple languages so that's I'm trying to push myself in that way nice um, uh, for the 25 days of actresses there's two more coming out right there you have two out and there's going to be two more I'm guessing or is there three more I think I'm gonna combine the last 10 days into one video so it'll oh, okay. be one more yeah. one more um, yeah. I, I gotta say it's it's I I respect the uh, from I guess one youtuber to another uh the December month is the interesting one where like it's so much better to put out like videos quickly due to the algorithm and all of that stuff. So I, I 100% uh, feel your pain and respect the grind. <laughs> oh, thank you. You know, yeah, <laughs> the hustle. Yes. Speaking of the hustle, before we go any further, Matt, I do have to say one thing and one thing only. Uh -oh. Happy 300th episode, buddy. Oh, this <laughs> is Topham. Uh, that's before I kick you into the well. Um, oh yeah, because course. it's the three hundredth episode. That's what we're Ugh. supposed to do. I didn't yell it. I didn't. This has topow. But uh, we all can't do that all the time. Yeah, congratulations, Shahir. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for sitting with me for two hundred and ninety nine up to this point. Yeah, I know. This is a. It's an odd milestone. Normally, uh, for you know, we've done it for episode fifty, a hundred, hundred fifty, two hundred, two hundred fifty. We've normally done. We didn't a do thing. anything for two hundred and fifty. I'm pretty sure we did something for two. See, this is how long we've been doing now. We're bickering like an old couple. It's yeah. like you remember that. <laughs> Um, no, uh, I, maybe we did, maybe we didn't. I don't know. There's lots of episodes where we did things and maybe 250 is one of them. Um, <laughs> you heard it here first. Izzy, there's lots of episodes where we did things. It's the tagline of the show, the only podcast of a movie. There's lots of episodes a where we did things. A ringing endorsement. Oh, it's, put that on the, it's the pull quote. Put it on the box. Uh, we unfortunately, because of, I, I guess because of quarantine times, because at the end of the year, 300 kind of snuck up on us a little bit. We knew it was coming. We, we had grand plans. Unfortunately, those grand plans gave way a little bit but what we did do was reach out to our listeners which we were really thrilled to do and ask them if anyone wanted to send in uh, a message or anything like that a song whatever uh, a christmas card perhaps um and you saved us listeners you saved us <laughs> you did more work for us to make this episode special uh than you know than than we could possibly have done we we've we've listened to the messages and we're going to play them at the end of this episode uh, I will just say uh, I was 
the the deepest part of the of the of the dead cockles of my heart were warmed and it grew three <laughs> sizes that day or or any other holiday euphemism you can think of that sounds undead and creepy uh <laughs> it was it was very lovely so thank you for all the messages and i'm looking forward to everyone else hearing them and uh, we will definitely at some point perhaps celebrate 300 in some meaningful a way surprise. but i will say Having Izzy back is a special is a special occasion in my Aww. opinion, uh, <laughs> and so I'm thrilled that we can do that. And we're talking about Mank, a movie that seems to be occupying film Twitter's mind at least until Christopher Nolan opens his mouth as he did this week. <laughs> um, so I am excited about that. If you go back a couple of episodes, we also did a special episode about Citizen Kane with the Oofle Busters, uh, talking a little bit about the history of Wells, uh, Mankiewicz in some context. But I think that was really a, a build up to this particular episode, mm. uh, Matt. Could you tell us what Mank, directed by David Fincher and written by Jack Fincher, is about? I sure could, Shahir. See, it's like we've done this before. <laughs> I feel like we should do this in the voice. You know, like the, in the, the, voice? The, the, the RKO voice. Yeah, like, like, uh, like yeah. tell us what it was about. <laughs> oh, like... <laughs> like a newsreel. Okay, newsreel. Uh... 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of the scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. That was really good. Wow. Oh, it is very you. good. And it sounds a lot like your Star Wars voice. It does, well, no, so but <laughs> we won't play 70s disco Star Wars under it. I'll probably drop like the bass out and make it real tinny, throw some static in there. Why not? I have time. <laughs> it honestly, it sounded like um, the Legend of Korra narrator. <laughs> oh, interesting. I, I have not watched Legend of Korra. I'm still the, getting through Avatar good. right now. Ooh, okay, mm. okay. Um... Izzy, I have to ask you, as a person, you, I mean, you, you you said you didn't go to film school, but I feel like every time I watch your channel, I'm going to film school. <laughs> I'm very curious if you could help us in a little bit. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you could help us contextualize the, generally the late 1930s, the early 1940s, or just the, the, the sort of context around which a film like Citizen Kane emerges. Hmm. You know, just real quick. <laughs> just real quick, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there are several ways to tackle that question. Um, one is specifically through the lens of RKO. So I know yeah. at the time, RKO was known specifically for um, its Astaire Rogers musicals, and they were looking specifically to get a kind of artsy deal going so they were signing a bunch of artists and naturally turned to Orson Welles who at the time was very uh was considered a prodigy for his stage productions mm -hmm. in New York and and his radio productions in you know War of the Worlds yes of course um and and I think another way to contextualize it is to just think about who the average moviegoer would think about when they're thinking about Hearst or who would they right. mm. be reminded of when they're watching Citizen Kane um, a, a very high percentage of Americans were reading Hearst newspapers and mm. had likely a fluency in his political history running for office failing changing his mind on several things having a giant castle all of this was kind of obvious to a lot of people who would have been paying attention to this thing so uh, it was also released in the context of knowing that it uh, was kind of poking fun at or at least uh, analyzing a very prominent figure in, in American culture 
Um, so yeah, those are just two ways of thinking about it, but I'm sure there are more just in terms of the filmmaking innovations that Wells introduced, uh, were, are very astounding and many people have said much more eloquent things about it than I would be able to, but, um. Yeah, we, we 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 talked about we talked about um, sort of a lot of that uh, in the in the uh, Citizen Kane episode we did. But uh, something that happened to me um, uh, in that episode uh, was that I was kind of over the film Citizen Kane at this point, and I think it's because <laughs> it's because like from an academic standpoint, I said it there. I of course respect what it did, all of the innovations it moved forward, uh, just the entirety uh, of of its of its uh, its power to change what cinema was. But now with the twofoldness of a lot of the tricks and, and skill that have been in that have been put in nearly almost every film that I've seen and the fact I'm really fucking tired of the great man trope, uh, <laughs> I I just, I'm just like, ah! I, this this watch through, uh, probably like my fourth or fifth or whatever uh, in, in my life, I was just, I was, I was done. <laughs> I was like, no thanks, I'll come back later. Um, well, so, what about you, um, Izzy, on that respect in terms of, you know, like, I, I does Citizen Kane register for you in any meaningful way or has it? Um, I would, I mean, I've never counted it among like films that I cherish. It's a favorite that I return to again and again, but I certainly appreciate it for its technical ability. I rewatched it maybe two weeks ago mm-hmm. and hadn't seen it for years, like maybe since college or high school mm-hmm. and I was very surprised by how surprised I was um yeah. just because some of the visuals had left my brain kind of um and I watched so many movies from that era <laughs> <laughs> like so many movies from the 30s and 40s and it was shocking to me how viscerally different that movie yeah. is um and how just the first I mean, I don't think we get into real dialogue in that movie until maybe 15 minutes in, which is shocking for films of that era Um, and the kinds of montage and the haunting uh, elements in it are just absolutely wonderful. Um, So I I think I've sort of renewed my appreciation for it more recently, but um, I think having stepped away from it for so long was definitely helpful in appreciating it in that way. I think also, uh, like, I, I, I sort of, by coincidence, happened to watch two films that I didn't realize had come out at the same time, but it came out in that year, and that was Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion and Preston Serge's Sullivan's Travels, uh, which I, rec- I recently just watched both of those. And, I, and you're right, when you sort of think about 1941 as a movie-going experience, I think nothing would stand out more. I mean, Suspicion kind of gets somewhat close to, like, the gothic quality of Citizen Kane, but... You know, Citizen Kane is German expressionism mm-hmm. uh, on steroids compared to something like Suspicion, um, and it's it's such a different looking, feeling, and um, I think the thing for me personally was like there's this sort of vitality to it that's unmistakable even today. It feels like there's an urgency to the way Wells is trying to like invent in every frame, um, which which I yeah I I mean I I know Matt that that the the actual narrative for you. Um, was problematic, but I think we can all kind of agree, at least from a technical point, at the very least from a technical point of view, um, it's still quite a dazzling movie. Yes, I, I think w- was the term that I, that, I mean, that's without question. I just I, I, I equated it to it's it's going to your your uh, cinematic yearly physical. 
It's it's <laughs> it's great for you, and you should do it to keep yourself healthy. I don't get excited about it, but I feel good once I've done it. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that's where I was anyway. Some of the the, the, the aging yeah. makeup too, I was very yes. impressed by. Yes, I, yeah, and and Wells's performance in that makeup is yeah. pretty extraordinary, given that it's like essentially his first on screen performance, and he's like twenty five. Yeah, yeah, and there's never a moment when he's like. 50 or 70 where you're kind of questioning is that an old man you're mm-hmm. always kind of go even in the the clunkier moments when he's like destroying the room and having to move around a little bit more you're still kind of going i believe that that is an older older man do, you know giving that performance mm-hmm. one last question i kind of wanted to situate in because this is a topic that you might know more about than uh, probably anybody i'd know which is marion davis uh, Hearst Mistress, who is, of course, uh, played by Amanda Seyfried in the film, um, uh, is someone who I actually feel like I only know through Citizen Kane and only by the fact that Susan Alexander, um, you know, Charles Foster Kane's younger younger wife in the film is is uh, based upon Marion Davies. But this film obviously gives us, uh, Mank gives us a different impression of her. I'm curious if what you know of Marion Davies or what you'd seen of her, because I, I have to admit, I have not seen any of her on-screen work mm-hmm. um i think so prior to watching mank i watched a lot of movies in which she's played by another actress um usually okay. about oh. like like uh there's the cat's meow um rko 281 yeah like yeah. virginia marsden played her is yeah. that her name yeah, um, yeah that's right. <laughs> at one point like many people have portrayed marion davies i think this is probably the best one of the group right um because I think it does a lot to counter what Citizen Kane sort of accidentally did to Marion Davies. Yeah. Um, if you only watch Citizen Kane, you think that Marion Davies is like a whiny alcoholic. She's talentless. She's spoiled. Um, and <laughs> in some sense, like, sure, she was spoiled because yeah. you know, you're married or not married, but you're with Hearst. Uh, you're pretty much going to get whatever you want. But um from everything that I've read about her, she had a gorgeous personality and was just the most effervescent host. Um, everybody loved to talk to her. Uh, if you watch her her films, um, she's a very gifted comedian. Right. And it's sort of a shame that her career essentially ended in 1937. She chose to retire, so it wasn't mm. so much that she was pushed out or anything, but mm. um, you know, things were kind of slowing down for her at that point. But... I think part of it, part of her, the shame of her reputation is due to Citizen Kane from sort of giving her this stereotype. And part Mm. of it is because Americans um, aren't very interested in silent films anymore. And some of her best work was done um, during the silent era. I believe she was the most popular star in terms of box office or Mm. of women, I think, um, from 1922 and 23. Right. So she was vastly beloved by America and we've sort of just forgotten her. And I think that's kind of a shame. Um, But I'm glad that this has sort of brought her back into the conversation and shown her as like a positive kind of fun, loving person that she seems to be. The way that you just sort of describing that, uh, I didn't, I didn't put two and two together about the silent films, uh, people not really watching silent films at that point anymore because the talkies had, had arrived is, is the, um, and you can throw this out if it's if it's if it's the wrong point or the wrong uh, thing I'm trying to connect. But I did just recently rewatch just for funsies singing in the rain. 
Uh, <laughs> and uh, the character in that, it was that sort of a trope that was sort of based off of either not her, but like a sort of like yes. the, right? Is that is that a direct connection or just a oh, an odd it's, coincidence? It's not a direct connection. Um, so when the silent when silent films were transitioning over to talkies, a lot of stars were left behind because they just weren't skilled in. Mm-hmm acting in, in that way um in some cases their voices were a turn yeah. off that's it's kind of a stereotype about john gilbert that people didn't like his voice and so he sort of just fell to the wayside although that has more to do with like his personal life than anything else sure right. um <laughs> but that happened to a lot of people for marion davies the interesting thing is that she had a stutter right. um mm. so that she when it was announced that talkies were basically the new way of life. She was really scared that she wouldn't be able to continue her career because she was afraid that she would just stutter on camera and you can't use that. They wouldn't be able to um, get good takes out of her. So she eventually, uh, the way that she puts it in her memoirs is that it actually helped her to kind of like learn her lines, Mm. helped her overcome her her stutter, Mm-hmm. Um, so she never had a problem with it on screen, but that was something that really threatened her transition into sound. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That's crazy. Uh, and yeah, this is of course the, the, the sort of similar plot to Sunset Boulevard as well. Sure. The, the actress kind of uh, uh, not being able to sort of adjust to the to the times. Uh, I think Faye Ray was the other actress who didn't quite transition as well. Or oh, I might be mistaken about that. Oh, plenty of them. I mean, Louise yeah. Brooks could have had a much longer career not sure why that didn't happen um also and of course just the the sort of the unfortunate reality of the fact that women in hollywood even today uh as they mature lose their value uh according to american american screen audiences Mm -hmm. um which is a terrible thing of course but even more prevalent in 1941 um i'm curious then you know if we switch gears a little bit into 2020 or or maybe even backtracking a little bit. I, I, the idea of David Fincher of all people tackling Citizen Kane, and I guess you know, again, I hadn't watched the trailers for this movie before it came out, so my presumption was was this was kind of in the in the ether of the Pauline Kael essay, you know, um, raising Kane, you know, the authorship of Citizen Kane, you know, Mankiewicz versus Wells. Did, does that does that narrative, does the, the idea of David Fincher tackling this, does, does any of that kind of seem interesting to you? I'm because I'm, because I want to get to something very specific about my reading of the film as as we get into it. Mm-hmm. I don't, Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, on Fincher doing it? Yeah. Not really. This seems kind of right up the alley. I mean, I know, I know, his father sort of was the writer, right? He yeah. he he was the progenitor of this yeah. entire thing. Um, it seemed pretty par for the course. I mean, I watched I watched the trailer, yeah, and was not impressed. Um, <laughs> but that, uh, but I, 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 you know, I went in. Uh, I th- and I, weirdly enough, I think watching the trailer uh, was. Uh, it was an interesting journey for me because I was like, oh, okay, I, I know David Fincher. I know what to expect. Uh, the trailer was very sort of like, oh, okay, cool, neat. Uh, I, I was – I was. Um, it set me up in both ways, I think, to and, – and in the end, it was a better film-going experience. 
undermine the film for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, and I, I guess sort of getting a little bit into it, uh, I think all of the things coming together in the actual film uh, actually surprisingly worked quite well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I I found myself expecting to be watching the clock, and I never thought about it once. And I think that is a credit to to David Fincher in the story that his father wrote. Um, I don't know what uh, what about you, Izzy? I was excited um, initially because I really, really like David Fincher as a director. Um, And I think one of the problems that I have (laughs) watching a lot of content that's made about old Hollywood is that nobody ever takes it seriously. Mm. The impulse is always to sensationalize um, or like gloss over the nitty gritty. And that was it would never occur to me that David Fincher would do that. Right. David Fincher is the first person who's never going to not gloss over the nitty gritty. Right, 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 and, right. right. <laughs> um, and like, I think his impulse is a serious one, although I think his films are very funny. Yeah, um, Une- unexpectedly funny. Right, like dark yeah. humor. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the thought of him handling a topic like that was very encouraging, and I was excited to see like what weight he would lend to it as opposed to like Ryan Murphy. You know what I mean? Of course. Right. <laughs> but yeah. 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 I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, look, I think uh, as we have de- seen in film Twitter over the last week, uh, there is no more of a central figure to the film bro community as David Fincher, uh, probably because of fight club. Um, but certainly the, the, the tackling of the masculine identity uh, and its foibles uh, are okay. within the spectrum of, of everything David Fincher does, uh, right through from Seven uh, to Gone Girl and uh, The Social Network, certainly. Um, and uh, I think the the unexpected thing about this um, is the approach to something as, uh, I guess, pastiche and, uh, uh, you know, um, configured as as recreating old Hollywood in the style of old Hollywood. I think that's something that of David Fincher's work that I I would be a little bit surprised by, given that uh, most of his work is grounded in not not necessarily reality, but a certain uh, contemporariness um, that is cinematically real. Um, And I've, you know, like, I think, um, uh, you know, for me personally, I've always been, as a filmmaker, um, it's, it's, it's often refreshing to watch his work because of the meticulousness nature of everything he puts to screen. Um, I, you know, like uh, once you become uh, accustomed to seeing how he does things, how everybody else does things seems a little bit looser. Uh, and for me, uh, although it has been tainted by the, uh, by by uh, by the events of Kevin Spacey's life, uh, look no further than the first few episodes of House of Cards. If you can watch um, the first two episodes, which I think he directed and then hands off the reins to others, everything suddenly loosens up. The sort of the tightness of the edits kind of falls away, hmm. and the way in which. Um, he, you know, like he will cut exactly on the rhythm of an actor turning their head um, is the kind of thing that that he does so well that that I think as a as as any craftsperson in the film industry will kind of appreciate is a David Fincher dolly move is very particular and very precise. And it has meaning when it when when the camera pans, it, it's sort of there's that kind of level of detail that I certainly appreciate from Fincher. Um, and yeah, notwithstanding. 
um, certainly within the the entire spectrum of film bro broiness, uh, David Fincher exists. Um, I think that meticulousness is what made this film work for me, though. Like I can't like straight up. I went into this thing thinking I was going to be bored. Right. I I was just like I don't care. I I don't know why it was a bad take to go into. I've been poisoned by uh, uh, jujitsu. I was hurt before, um, uh, and. And and I gotta say, it was the meticulousness and the care in in kind of the ways that you've both described of of David Fincher's style that made me like actively like buckle into this entire experience and like I know how it turns out, we know how it goes, um, but like I was just in it, and it was all tightly put together personal moments that that and I'll talk about a few of them as we as we sort of go. But that also with the mimicry, again, the the hyper intensely perfect mimicry of mm. of well, well, actually, I, I, let me take that back. The, the the feeling of old Hollywood. I know everything wasn't perfectly mimicked because I think even at this point, there's like you have to get the feeling more than you have to get the exact technical spec of it because the technical spec of it has become parody in certain way like the way that he maneuvers around this gives you the feeling at least it gave me of watching older films like and, and I had not I have not seen that done this well before I don't know if either of you have uh in anything else this felt to me if I didn't know the actors if I didn't understand film digital you know either grain or like whatever like i could be like oh yes this this is a, a, a movie from, from a bygone era uh mm. and that really impressed me i i think um i think uh, the movie that comes to mind is the coen brothers hail caesar uh, as a contemporary film that's reflecting on that really period. It has the the sort of texture of that period it's obviously not um it doesn't have the the sort of uh, absolute mimicry of style um, in terms of black and white and the dots and the burns and the sound sure. affectation. That felt that more like an homage to me. Like, but, like, but it jumps out at me as as just just something to think about. Mm. Um, I I would say yeah. the lighthouse. Yeah, for me was mm-hmm. more evocative of that era than this mm. was. Um, I would agree on the cinematography. I think the fact that there was such like hyper weird stuff still put me in the current. If yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I see what you mean. I think, yeah, just from the te- technical perspective, yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah. lighthouse was that for me. I think lighthouse reminds me of a Bergman movie more than mm-hmm. than a Studio Forties picture. I don't know why. I, I I get Bergman out of that more than, or I get the um, Bergman Time of the and Wolf. like Murnau maybe. Yeah, exactly. That sort of European approach to uh, much more expressionistic, mm-hmm. um, and Ursula. And Ursula, the the sea witch from <laughs> this, Little Mermaid. I was trying to be friends with you guys. Izzy, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to go first in terms of? Uh, do you want to go next in terms of like the impressions of the movie? Um. So okay, yes. Uh, I think I had almost the exact like mirror opposite reaction to Matt. Like yes. I went in very excited i am the precise target audience for this film i prepared i read three books about this topic to Mm. like be in it to win Mm. it um and i was just so bored i (laughs) (laughs) i checked my phone to like see how long it had been going on um i 
have I've been thinking very deeply about why I was so bored by it. Because this is the exact type of thing that should, you know, get my get me excited, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I think and this is maybe a bug and a feature of like biopic movies like this. Um but I think expository dialogue just kills the mood for me and Mm. that is maybe 80 percent of the dialogue in this movie is like explaining something to somebody else or telling some something to somebody else that they should know about this thing that you know just happened you know it's not there are no almost no like real conversations between people in this movie aside from Aside no. from like Marion and and May and yeah, yeah. No. and that's so, where I was latched in. Yeah, I just felt that it was so disinterested in treating Mank as a person rather than as a witness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that to me, I just couldn't harness myself to feeling invested in him, and so it was kind of frustrating to, you know be tagging along with this person who wasn't really impacting most of what was happening rather just kind of watching it and then eventually regurgitating that into a script. Yeah. Um, so See, to, yeah, that's how I was I just going to say, I was going to say, I feel like it, it, almost every, I, I thought this movie even took liberties obviously on what actually happened. Of course it did, but like made Mank incredibly central to nearly every plot point like they like it almost felt like too much for me like like it was like he was this central figure that was always right place right time said the the thing that got someone else to do the thing that like moved everything around like he was far more this painted him i thought at least from what i understand of the history of it as more of a keystone figure than yes uh, that i i totally agree with that but i think um the way i would kind of explain how I feel about it is that he is in the right place at the right time and he influences the chessboard, but we know almost nothing about the chess piece. Right. You know what I mean? Like, we don't I know don't about know him. What, right. Or, or Just what, or what his, uh, what his actions actually do to affect everything that's happening around him. Right. Well, I, I, so like, uh, we don't really know anything about his marriage beyond like that scene where she kind of takes care of him. Yeah. Right. We don't really know anything about his past. Like, why does he keep getting fired? <laughs> um, you know, like he's a drunk, but like, where did that come from? Like, has he always been one? I have no idea. Like, uh, the ways that he talks to people, like all of it just sort of felt like the reflection of a person rather than a person. (laughs) I have an idea. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and well, I I can save my idea because until Shahir goes as well, but I think I have, I'm, I'm formulating something and (laughs) I might have a a borderline intelligent thought about our, (laughs) both of our experiences and why they might've happened the way they did. All right. Well, why don't you let that ferment for a minute? I'm gonna. And, uh, uh, if, <laughs> I'll if ferment Matt it the on, way Mank does. <laughs> if Matt was on one side of the mirror and Izzy was on the other, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle 
which is to say, again, uh, like you, Izzy, I was primed for this movie. David Fincher doing a piece uh, about Citizen Kane, a movie I love, about Orson Welles and the, the question of authorship around Orson Welles is a topic that I'm deeply invested in. Uh, if uh, Orson Welles' film, If a Fake, is one of my, my, my keystone films of my life. Um, so I was very curious how, how someone like uh, Fincher, who's crafted more of the contemporary cinema that I like, would tackle this particular subject. And I have to say, sitting there watching it, I wondered what the appeal would be for someone who was not me. And I struggled really, I struggled very heavily to, to find anything in here that would be of interest to anyone who wasn't interested in either Wells, Citizen Kane, uh, Herman Mankiewicz, or that story. That said... The movie was somewhat surprising in that it was um, less Citizen Kane and more Chinatown, which is that um, Mankiewicz kind of finds himself, or at least in his retelling of the story, uh, found himself at the center of Hollywood or Los Angeles conspiracy a la Jake Giddies from Chinatown um, that runs far deeper than his pay grade. And... And, you know, the, the, the conceit here, and this is a spoiler for the movie, is that Mankiewicz uh, realizes that a suggestion that he makes to Irvin Thalberg is the, is the reason that Hearst and MGM gets into a propaganda campaign against Upton Sinclair's uh, gubernatorial run uh, of 1937, I believe it was. Uh, 34. Just, yeah, yeah, 34. There you go. Um, just pr- you know, prior to him getting into Citizen Kane, and before he writes Citizen Kane, and the the link that the film is kind of drawing here is is where I have a real is where I I, I sort of say you know what I I just think the line of what this film is trying to do is a little too tenuous. Is the link is that Mankiewicz's the witnessing of those events and his uh, intersection with those events is the reason he decides to take down Hearst uh, and Marion Davies um, uh, through the writing of Citizen Kane. And I think to draw that line or to appreciate the significance of that line as this film depicts it requires such a heavy preload of understanding what Citizen Kane is, understanding what Hearst is, understanding how the film do- how Citizen Kane does this and mm-hmm. I I have a real speci- I, I, so so I think you know anyone watching it who doesn't have that kind of foregrounded knowledge is going to have a hard time with this. And the second thing is I think even on its own terms telling that story the film doesn't do a good job of explaining the consequences of what Mank does. In, and, and to me, the real problem is the third act. Um, the, the first two acts really set up this, this connection between Upton Sinclair and Mankiewicz and, Citizen Ka- and Hearst and, and Citizen Kane. The third act should be the consequence of that. Like, what was the fallout of Mankiewicz deciding to take this plunge into um, putting Hearst up as the model for Charles Foster Kane. And the film seems to gloss over that, that he simply wins the award, takes credit for it, and the film is over, as in it is some sort of um, uh, triumph for Mankiewicz. Um, and, I, and I just think that, that the, the movie is already inside baseball to not actually conclude its own internal story in a meaningful way 
makes it such a difficult sell for anyone outside of this world. I will, I fully, you know, Fincher, craftsman amongst the best in the world, um, without, you know, without, um, um, without fault, uh, almost to a fault in some cases, as you de- as you described, as he, um, without the kind of uh, uh, the human capacity that this film needs, which is demonstrated in in many of his other movies as well. You know, things. Uh, I, I mean, as much as the curious case of Benjamin Button, you know, sort of sort of doesn't quite work, but you know, is kind of it's what it is. Uh, I think Gone Girl is kind of his most human film of all things. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's me. Um, but this is a film that, um, that is so specific that I can't, even me, who's like the target audience for this film, wonders how anyone's going to watch this and enjoy it, um, meaningfully. (laughs) No, I'm, I a hundred percent agree with everything you said. I remember so the scene where he walk, where Charles Letterer walks into the writer's room yeah, and sort yeah. of lists off these yeah, very writers. prominent yeah. screenwriters who, like, if you don't know who they are, that's just going to fly over your head. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just going to be a pointless introduction. The introduction of Joseph von Sternberg, von Sternberg yeah. so pointless. But <laughs> it's like for he us. He only says a line. Yeah, and I know is, who that person is. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I, know, I know that, for example, Mank wrote, two of his movies before yeah. this scene was even supposed to take place. Yeah. But like for everyone else who doesn't know that it's like, what's that do for you? Literally yeah. nothing. And so there's the, and what sort of what you were saying, Matt is like this entire film is so meticulously detailed exactly in that way where there's a, a sentence. Every other line is sort of made specifically for people who know exactly like yeah. all of Mank's history and specific silent films or like Joe Mankiewicz's history. Yeah. And I can just see that being so frustrating. Um, And sort of what you were saying about the follow through, the thing that totally bothered me in the last act, as you were saying, uh, we finished the parable about the organ grinders monkey or the monk. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The organ grinders monkey. Yeah. Uh, and that's supposed to be like, that is a climax. That is the yeah. moment where we realize, you know, Mank wants to like stand up to this person. He doesn't want to be the monkey, whatever. And then it goes immediately into a debate about credits that yeah. <laughs> got previously three lines in the screenplay. And you're just like, How? what an, yeah, kind of anticlimactic. Well, so um, on that, on that note, I, I thought the and I, I I do want to get back to my larger thing because I think I just cracked a huge a huge brain egg. Um, <laughs> Ew, but the gross. no, it's in there now. It's scrambling. Um, I took the, the I took the um, the the argument about credits between him and Wells. I actually thought that the only reason that had even remote weight was the organ grinders monkey thing because I took that basically as. This isn't—the surface-level thing is Mankiewicz wants credits because it's it's the best thing he's ever written. Cool, 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 cool. The real reason is because he wants Hearst to know it was him. He's a real Lady Elena of Game of Thrones, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, kind of. But, like, I don't think—like, I wouldn't have given a shit about that argument about credits because I don't care about Herman Mankiewicz outside of this film, which I'll get to more of my egg scramble in a second. (laughs) <laughs> but because of that setup, it gave me the emotional juice to be like, oh, shit, he's like fighting to tell this guy fuck you. Like, 
uh, the, the, it, the most could, powerful man in in America at the time. But but to that, if if that is your read, and I think that's a, that's a perfectly fine read of of the conversation of credit in this film, would you have been interested to see how Hearst responds to that? No, because there we is know an how, age, we know how Hearst land. responds to that. But there is a massive story about Harris trying to bury this movie. Right. Like so, George, and I think that's way interesting. Yeah. So, so, and, and rightfully so. But here's my, here's my takeaway. I think this movie, and maybe this is a miss, but I liked the bug and the feature line, Izzy, because <laughs> this movie is for me. <laughs> and, and, and by that, I mean, I am a weird cross section, okay? I love film. I love the technical aspect of film. I am very bad at remembering names of people who have worked on film. I don't know the history of this thing, though I know the importance of the history of the thing. I love meticulous detail. I love films that make you feel like there's a bigger world outside the film and don't reference them. I will even use the Marvel Cinematic Universe in this particular <laughs> argument because this does feel like a movie. If you went and watched Captain America Civil War as the first Marvel movie, you're going to be like, I get it, but why is... Okay, that person is here. Uh... Oh right! Oh, I know Ant Man. Kind of like that's 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 what <laughs> that this movie. Mood. Yeah, that's this what is this the, movie this is, is doing. This is the Manx Cinematic Universe. This is the Manx Cinematic Universe. Uh, it, it is now. So so on that note, I'm already primed to like dig that, and I don't. But but the other side of it is, and I think this is why I'm a weirdly this, this specifically the perfect person for this movie, and I don't even know if it's designed to be this way. I think it just kind of happened, is I also, so I, I like that style of storytelling or hint hinting of a larger universe behind it, and I know that there's history behind it. I also don't care enough about that universe to think about the thing that might be more interesting that I don't know or or oh they bring up this person and he he did this that and the other thing I don't care he said a funny line and Mankiewicz had a quick thing and like, da, 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 da. like and I'm fine with it like it's it's this perfect cross section of knowledge and ignorance that I think is is like it really zeroes in to me I think this is about me yeah, that that kind of makes sense, honestly. It's just, but what I mean, essentially, what you're saying is like you were more easily able to suspend your disbelief. Yes, yes, but, and 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 I could ignore the intrinsic problem of a world being set up that is not explained because I kind of like that as a as a as an exercise. Right. Um, I, I I think I think you're Matt. If if the film works for you and it works in that way, I think then it obviously lands. And my qualms about who would enjoy this movie uh, are are effectively quashed at this point. <laughs> but but I I wonder. So a couple of things came to mind. The, the, okay, maybe the question I want to ask you, Matt, is does the 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 sort of um, democratic socialist, which is a very 2020 um, approach to to history here, the the, the democratic socialist um, uh, thinking about Upton Sinclair and his campaign, mm -hmm. coupled with the 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 sort of un not union busting, but the the union the the formation of the writers writers guild in the story as Mankiewicz kind of rejects it, alongside Louis B. Mayer asking his employees to take a fifty percent pay cut and then not reimbursing them for that time. Um, does that does that sort of like milieu of the greater 
the greater sense of the political structure in place, does that connect you to why Mankiewicz writes Citizen Kane in the way he does? Yes, but it okay. think, I think it does it, sadly, again, outside of the film. I'm going to go yeah. back to another reason why this is all about me. <laughs> um, so I am currently working on Extra History on a series on Teddy Roosevelt and trust busting. And right. uh, 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 and while that does mainly deal with Rockefeller, I'm dealing with a lot of the different trusts, uh, uh, a lot of the oil trust, Standard Oil, etc. We get into the meat trust, uh, a couple other Which things. Which is all Upton, what Upton Sinclair was writing about in, right. in a lot of his work. Right, yeah. right, right. So I'm like neck deep in history of the shadowy goings on of big business screwing over people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that note, it's it's. It's so so I have that sort of in my brain. So when this movie started connecting those dots, when this movie started moving along those lines, I actually zeroed in harder uh, because it's in my current wheelhouse of thought. And Mm. I really liked the fact that they were tying a story that I thought. And again, I know that this is all embellishment for the sake of this film, but I'm going to say the movie surprised me in this way, tying the motivations of of Mank to uh, sort of a twofold thing. One, it, it's like on the on the surface, it's you could read it as he sees all these people getting screwed and doesn't want to have uh, the quote great man keep screwing people, so he wants to tell off the great man. Two, but he wants to he wants to make sure that the great man knows that it's him doing it. Again, I don't think the real life Mank was doing this, but it made a very compelling story for me throughout. Hmm. Um. Hmm. So yes, it did work again, but I don't. To both of your points, I don't know if anyone outside of my very specific headspace at this point could get the level of joy and wonderment I, out of the out of the picture as a whole. I think there are spots that everyone can can gleam onto. I do want to talk about every scene that Gary Oldman and, Amer- and Amanda uh, Seyfried are in together because they are they are they are the best. Um, but yeah, overall, I think uh, it worked for me 100%. Okay. I think the thing also just to tack on to the conversation we had a little bit earlier about like wanting Hearst to know, mm-hmm. what I think is really funny about the credits um, debate that sort of, I think, distracted me as well is that, you know, we go right into the Academy Awards, which again, I think is a very odd jump in time Mm, um wasn't my favorite but whatever (laughs) um but like the way he uses his speech not to point at hearst or mayor wells at wells (laughs) yeah so it's like it's a very uh like i sort of lost sense of in that in that moment which is again the last moment in the movie (laughs) like who he was really after what he is what is your goal here he doesn't point at wells he points toward him no no, no. he he says in that speech mm-hmm. if you are describing how uh why i am receiving credit that's the magic or why wells is uh uh receiving part of this academy award he says that's the magic of the movies as if to say it's it's a magic as if, trick to, that, as if to say to, it's all him no as if to say yeah as as, as, as to say well, more to me, say that Wells, Wells doesn't deserve this. Deserve credit, Wells yeah. doesn't deserve it. Wells didn't write it. Wells didn't take down Hearst. 
Yeah, and it's a strange thing because uh, as as uh, a fan of Wells, but uh, appreciative of of the jackassery that is Orson Welles in Hollywood. Um, you know, it is difficult to say that, that, that the screen, you know, the screenplay is one component of what is the takedown of Hearst in mm-hmm. this film. And, and in fact, Pauline Kael's, uh, article has been debunked, um, several times over, not least of which, uh, a retort by Peter Bogdanovich, uh, a few, few years later. Uh, but also seven, several readings of the screenplay, uh, and and its various drafts have, have suggested that Wells had a significant hand in rewriting the script. Oh, sure. I'm not here. I'm not here to defend Wells. I'm, I'm certainly and, not. And I'm not here to say this film is historically accurate. No. And no. if the film basically is think... positing that you know Mankiewicz wrote the script and Wells didn't, then I think that's a fine approach to take. But yeah, I just think the leap to like from Hearst uh, to uh, Wells. Yeah, I think yeah. it's it's it was if that was the intention, which was <laughs> not in those last minutes. What I took away from it, then. It, uh, if it was too difficult for me, I imagine it was too difficult for other people to make that leap as well. See, here's, and I don't think a it's a matter pers- of difficulty. I really yeah. don't. I, I, I do, all jokes aside, I think I am positioned in a very unique spot to <laughs> latch on to the, the to maybe, to, to, truthfully, to maybe even stuff that isn't there. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like the lattice work has connected all of the dots that maybe were were maybe it was sloppy and there was something in my life that was like oh did boop like you, what's you what's know? interesting is i watched the film twice um really? and the second time around i kind of i think i was the first time around i was kind of like um trying to figure out where all the leaps in logic were jumping you know like mm-hmm. how to connect the leaps in logic in sort of a meaningful way and by the, and the second time around where i was kind of aware of what the film was going to do i was more taken by the craftsmanship and how and how i think how well the lines that the film is trying to draw are there apart from you know i think the the thing izzy that you've mentioned which is the final sort of uh logical leap of of why do we not see or understand what the consequence of this action was to Mankiewicz, um, which I think is is the big sort of failing of the movie's storyline. Um, but like, you know, a little bit of personal information here. Uh, as a student in a, doing my master's, I wrote I once wrote a play about Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst meeting in a bar in pre-revolutionary Cuba. And and like I was heavily invested <laughs> in the idea of these two human beings and the and and the 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 war between them. And even I who spent Years doing that, and it's a. By the way, it's a very bad play. Very, very bad. No, play. we're gonna read. We're gonna do a live reading for it's episode very, very four hundred. That's what but we're I, doing. Even I, who kind of am am that invested in this in this universe, find this link. Th- this link between. I. Th- you know what? The, the, but I it's that investment that poisoned you. <laughs> the the thing that's interesting is I think um I. I can't verify this, but Eric Roth, uh, the screenwriter of Forrest Gump and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, uh, wrote, and I believe was a producer on this film, uh, wrote how excited he was about the movie. And there was part of me that as I was watching going, I really do wonder, um, and, I, and I did read in an interview that Eric Roth and David Fincher, after Jack Fincher had passed away, bounced the script around a little bit more. Um, and, and, you know, Eric Roth has that sort of, um, that nostalgic... 
um, view of the intersections of history. I think that's that's very mm-hmm. true of Forrest Gump, of, of very true of the curious case of Benjamin Button, and I think very true of this. And it's this idea that that people stumble through important moments in history only to realize their significance later, which is what happens in Benjamin Button, and again happens in Forrest Gump, and I think happens in this. the The, the problem is is that the the link to I I guess maybe what the issue is is there's not there's there's a presumption that we know and understand what Citizen Kane is and how Citizen Kane works and what Citizen Kane is saying about Hearst. And maybe that's a leap that we should assume, like maybe retelling that would be kind of a boring thing to do in this film. But I don't know if the film's internal logic makes those connections as it, clearly as they can. I think it almost gets there with it that. It almost gets there. That, yeah, that, right. um, that drunken monologue uh, he has yeah, where he the, just tells the whole story. He, he yeah. does his, but it's based on Don Quixote, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, it yeah. almost does it. Which, by the way, he did actually say that line, apparently. Yeah, the white what, the white wine came up with, the, yeah. the fish came up with the white wine, yeah. So funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think... I also agree with that because I watched it a second time and really meticulously dug through it, like pausing every 10 seconds. I like was Googling posters that were up like, like hotel names. I went, I combed through this movie. I telling you, and I, like you were saying, have such an admiration for the level of detail that David Fincher put into it. I mean, it's impressive beyond belief I think that can also like we were saying be a negative because there's so much to consume and you have to be able to kind of just turn it off a little bit um I think if you have to you turn it off all things. the way <laughs> yeah but I think going through that second time did give me more appreciation like you were saying for the sort of the nuggets of personal details mm. um so for example he tells a joke. Uh, Rita Alexander says something like, "Oh, you're a, a screenwriter because you're super at it," <laughs> and and he's like, uh, "He basically the point of the joke is that he's a screenwriter because he can't write anything else." Right. Um, which just is kind of at first glance a very self-deprecating joke, but also if you know about Herman Mankiewicz, you know that he considered himself to be slumming. He yeah. he yeah. thought that real writing was for novels and plays and he never wanted to be a screenwriter and always thought he was uh he always sort of hated himself for doing it so like that joke means something on several layers um and it sort of like not pausing to absorb it helped me appreciate it more I can't believe the both of you watched this movie that you didn't really like twice, and I really liked this movie, and I only watched it once. It's almost like I'm going to tie this to another nerdy property. (laughs) You are both what I would consider straight up, and this is a compliment. (laughs) Wait for it. (laughs) Cinematic Jedi. You are are some of the most well-versed, intelligent, just, just like... Make me reconsider everything I think about a thing, people, when it comes to this space. 
Are you Anakin in this scenario? Is no, no. You two are Anakin in this scenario. <laughs> oh no, God. Anakin goes to the dark side and gets his legs chopped this off. Is the, this is the thing. <laughs> Maybe not Anakin, but you know the, the Jedi adage, the reason why they can't, and I don't agree with the, sort of a Jedi code in a, in a whole bunch of ways, but the whole thing is you're not supposed to make attachments because the fear of losing them is is considered a weakness, which I don't think is true. I think the ne- the latest episode of The Mandalorian actually handles it very well. But but in the in the movies, <laughs> I think this is a little bit of that. I think it's 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 th- this the combined specifically with you, Shahir, because you don't like movies that reference other things. <laughs> if it's not, and, and that's fine. We've talked about this at nauseum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is totally cool. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, but like that combined with with the knowledge sort of like the the knowledge being a little bit poison, and also the drive to want to understand it and feel like you should have liked it more. Mm. Is that does that I, ring any? Like, here, I don't well, know. Here's the. Here, I would agree oh, sorry, with you. Easy. I would agree with you normally. Like, <laughs> if you said that exact same thing about when I watched Judy, yeah, okay, then I would agree with you. Mm. But I truly think that the the reasons I didn't like this film have nothing to do with its historical inaccuracy and rather with how it is constructed and how it fails to close a lot of loops. Yeah. I, um, I, I think, I think that the, the, I didn't realize the loops were there and that's why, right. That's why I think it works for me. <laughs> but I, yeah. So that's just kind, <laughs> kind of where I came down on it. But I will also say that I only watched it again. I, because I'm working on a video about it. Right, right. I'm very <laughs> curious to see what you, what you have to say about it in the video. I, 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 the other thing, I, the other way I wanted to frame this is to look at it as the sort of, um, as has been the home of Netflix recently, the the um, the personal project that is being salvaged by Netflix. Mm. Um, you know, and I'm thinking, of course, of The Irishman and um, perhaps Roma to a certain extent as well. Um, that is that, and there is something I think lovely about the idea of david fincher you know writing a film that his um that is uh you know his 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 father wrote uh but could never get off the ground i think there and there is something sort of lovely in that mankowitz mankowitz's triumph at the end somewhat feels like um a little bit of a you know perhaps a nod to his father who toiled away at this one thing and you know eventually putting it to screen i i think i like that and 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 i also kind of like i Matt, you described it as not enjoying the film. I certainly enjoyed the film. Oh, okay. I certainly enjoyed, you know, like again, um, a, a, a David Fincher misfire is probably better than ninety percent of the movies you will watch in a movie theater if you could go to one. Um, and and so there, there's no sort of question about like things being done badly. I think there's a question of what is this film about. Mm-hmm. And what is this film trying to posit? And I think, Izzy, as you kind of said, it sort of gets there. But for me, the line is so tenuous um, that it's hard to kind of... It, it doesn't feel revelatory. It feels thin, I think, is the way I kind of yeah, feel flat. about it. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, 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 it's a stretch to get to the points that it's trying to get to. And it requires kind of a leap of faith in terms of, like, uh, even buying it. And then let alone accepting it as emotionally resonant, which is what it should do. 
um, by the end. I think I think Mankiewicz is rendered as pithy and as wise and as funny as I think um, as I think you know I've read about him. Um, some uh, a writer. Uh, suggested that had Mankiewicz not gone to Hollywood um, he was a, a, a pretty good journalist so in that scene um, at Hearst uh, San Simeon where he describes uh, um, socialism as sharing the wealth and communism sharing the poverty is a kind of a pithy uh, retort that, that Mankiewicz would have I think a writer described him as potentially being in the same realm as Walter Lippmann um, you know and and, and I I I feel that I, I like Gary Oldman's performance. I think the most human parts of this movie are um, um, Marion Davies and Mankiewicz kind of like yeah. forming this bond uh, over their mutual outsiderness of the the characters that are floating around San Simeon. But I don't even feel Marion Davies's character in this film is too upset by the film, even though. Uh, and maybe one of you could correct me. Has the film come out? when she goes to meet Mankiewicz or she just no. heard about the script no the script because they were they, they it was still the first draft he, that he didn't even have the conversation with Wells at that point which isn't the case because the reason why Hearst was aware of the film was because of Luella Parsons and Luella had, Parsons had Hopper a, yeah yeah and getting right. it on a screening but you're you're right. you're, you're leaning on your fear of, of knowing of knowing what actually happened fear leads to anger anger leads to hate hate leads to suffering guys <laughs> But what I'm saying is, like, why? Because that's not what happened in the movie. <laughs> no, no, but in the movie. Yeah. Everyone's why... going to Megawitz to be like, you are dumb. Do not well, do this. You are yeah. throwing your life away. And hers is a little bit different because it's also tied with her, I mean, not livelihood. Again, she's going to be fine. Hers <laughs> uh, is now giving Hurst million dollars loans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like. You know, and and truth be told, she comes at him almost as a friend, at least again, not historically, but in this film, she I, I loved the scene where she's like, Look, I didn't when we got together, like I didn't love him, but I do now. And mm -hmm. like this is bad for him, and you're my friend, and I love him, and this is just like it, I liked it because she seemed like such a a good person, or the character of her in this moment seemed like such a good person, because it wasn't about protecting her. Like it was, it right. like she didn't care really. She was fine. Like it was about weird protecting Hearst and oh, in a weird way protecting Magovitz because she knew the damage that could be done to him. I think like mm -hmm. it was all about other people. She's trying to save him from himself, and I don't know. I I so th just a, a bit a quick spin around. This movie did not connect connect with me until their first scene together mm. and then that's what sort of like did you said everything was sort of stretched i did sort of see it as like ah fast talking going through a movie studio cut to this oh, now flashback like like a script i'm like all right like this is fine and i like trent Reznor's score sure let's go and yeah. then and then when it slowed down and you got that moment of the two of them and i loved it because it never felt I, I you know you, you get the idea that uh, maybe Mankiewicz's marriage is a little unconventional, um, <laughs> and but like you never got I, I never got the like the creep ball vibe. It always felt very like much like uh, uh, both of them in this in this scenario whenever they were interacting were like equals who just really liked each other, and it was like the, those moments tied back a lot of the humanity to it. Every time I thought it was getting maybe to your words here stretched. Mm -hmm. those moments just zero focus right in and I'm just like boom 
and and those I think fueled those moments where it was starting to uh, expand too far. Yeah, and I think a, maybe a good uh, like counterpoint is to under is to compare to his scenes with Sarah. Mm-hmm. So the first time we see Sarah, she's helping him kind of undress after a very drunken evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that they talk to each other is Sarah says, do you remember this thing that happened? Here's an insight into your personality, which is like my least favorite type of dialogue. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, but then when he talks to Marion, they're talking to each other like people who are getting to know each other. Yep. Mm. They just sound like human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, 100%. I, it's, I, I, I agree with you. I think it was really refreshing every time that they were um, on screen together and that scene, yeah, I kind of got the same impression where it's just meant to show kind of her generosity um, and selflessness, mm-hmm. um, which is how I kind of understand that it it went down because she did kind of maintain a good relationship with mm. at least Orson Welles after that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. I, I think I, I think one thing is that you could you can make a point for is that this film does uh reform the the image of Marion Davies outside of Susan Alexander from Citizen Kane in much the same way that um Quentin Tarantino reclaims Sharon Tate in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood you know like it it, it re in a way replatforms her um you know for a contemporary audience as to say no it isn't just this person you know in mm-hmm. Sharon Tate's case who who was murdered uh in the case of um Marion Davis it's not this person who was the basis for Susan Alexander uh it, it, there is something more to it and I think I think you know like you say like you like I think we've all mentioned the scenes where um they're having a conversation I, I think one of my favorite lines is uh they're talking about how uh Upton Sinclair was finance, you know, like received financing from Irvin Thalberg for a movie, and then refused to you have any words changed. And there was some conversation about how uh, Louis B. Mayer, um, you know, sold out, uh, sold the name of MGM, and and Marion Davis says, you know, and, and Manx says it's complicated, and she says over my head, and he says over mine, and you realize that these two have this connection of like being on the periphery of these sort of larger than life figures who wield enormous machineries of industry and have no, you know, and, and, you know, even Marion Davis's exit from that scene was because she misspoke about uh, Hearst's involvement in FDR's cabinet picks. Um, so I think, you know, like, I think that stuff really works. Um, it's the, if I was to reform this film, if I was to kind of repitch this film, I think the thing for me is, I think Upton the story of the gubernatorial race and MGM's involvement in thwarting Upton Sinclair's uh, run, I think that's a really interesting and also very contemporary 2020 mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders at the, you know, like Bernie Sanders run kind of story. And then if Citizen Kane was the footnote to that story... I think that would be, you know, an interesting way to do this. But this film frames Citizen Kane at the center of that story, and Upton Sinclair is the footnote, and and that's the, like that's the mis- the configuration that kind of just makes me feel like it's a little, it's stretched a little too far. Yeah, it's kind of just hard to know what to pay attention to, like which story am I following? Yeah, I liked it because whenever I got bored, there was another story. <laughs> I, I, I say that simply, but like it, it is kind of true. Like it, it, when the when the when the may, maybe that's in there because 
Well, I mean, depending on what they were doing, like, you can only talk about the Hearst thing for so long. <laughs> I don't know. Why don't, why don't I jump in first in Final Thoughts? Because I'm, I'm curious. Both of you, I think, have the more interesting opinions on this, which is that I, I like the film... I, I like the film a lot, and I think in in a in the body of David Fincher's work, I think it's it's uh, a really interesting turn. It's sort of more in line with the Social Network than it is with um, than <laughs> Seven and Fight Club and Gone Girl and all those sorts of things. Um, but but I think the the interesting thing for me is its purpose in terms of connecting Mank to Citizen oh to Upton Sinclair and Citizen Kane is a is is a is a really interesting idea not one that i think the the screenplay unfortunately rest in peace jack and jack fincher uh is one that i think really does a great job in in entirely connecting but one where i think there's certainly the the sort of kernel of a unique idea there that that i kind of like and which is why i'm happy to rewatch it and give it another you know spin it up again but not i guess not in one that i'm entirely convinced works in its in its form as it does right now um that's not to say again you know things like roma and the irishman and and you know even once upon a time in hollywood films that are sort of these unique um or touristic swings at unusual ideas i mean i think um fincher mentioned that uh he and you know like reading his father's screenplay uh really made him understood what termite art was uh the many favor term of about uh how to think about our uh you know specific art and this is an example of you know very specific art it's 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 so specific i'm not sure uh i, I can quite see the audience for it and that might make me a terrible producer on this film if i was the one if, if i was being pitched this movie um but matt you enjoyed it and and it worked for you so maybe i'm the bad producer on this one and um and would have turned it down i disagree i think if we're look we we know me and how i like numbers i'll just say some stuff real quick and then izzy could can take us home um if we're going for numbers i don't think there's a lot of people like me with this specific mix of of knowledge interest and what's going on in their personal and professional life where this all would work as well as it did I'm very happy for me as an experience that it did. Mm -hmm. I think it did a lot of things right. I think the interpersonal stuff is great. I do think that some of the other stuff is stretched too thin, but I also don't know the loopholes. I don't see them as clearly uh, as as others more in the know might. It makes, after talking with both of you, it makes total sense why a lot of people are bored as fuck with this thing. <laughs> and And... And I just don't fall into it. Jahir, you made the joke, uh, like, I think a couple podcasts ago, and you did again today, about the MCU, the Meg Cinematic Universe. <laughs> you did it, in a sense, whole, like, trying to take that thing, not, not in a bad way, just using the thing that I like and being like, this is going to be the thing that I like. <laughs> and, and that very thing... I do feel is one of the reasons <laughs> why it didn't connect with you. I think this movie, I, I will, I'm looking forward to when, when Jamie or whomever wants to be like, Hey, I would like to watch this movie because I will watch it again at the drop of a hat. I was very entertained. Um, and I think that came from n not being uh, a full fledged cinematic Jedi. I am, I am, but a Padawan. Uh, and, uh, Izzy, Izzy, take us home. To, uh, the final thoughts on Mank. Mank with an exclamation point. Yes. Um, okay, so I think for me, it didn't work because too many threads were woven into a 
a scarf that was never finished. <laughs> um, I think if you're going to essentially fictionalize a very influential <laughs> event uh, in cinematic history for this person, maybe you can punch it up a little bit, a bit more. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I think sort of what I came around to when I was first watching it and when I finished, I was just sort of disappointed by the pacing. Like I said, many of the the loops that weren't closed. Um, and as I've sort of been revisiting the history for, um, for this video that I'm writing, I find myself getting more and more disappointed with it because <laughs> what you were talking about, like the reminders of what could have been are sort of lowering my rating <laughs> for the, for the movie as I like, continue to sit with it um just because i think there are some really very entertaining parts of this story that are just kind of let loose seemingly to make room for you know this story that uh hits really well in 2020 but doesn't really have much to do with citizen kane at all Mm. um so you know i think it's regrettable to have lost those things, but ultimately it was just the construction for me that, that lost me upon that initial viewing. Hmm. I think though, maybe, maybe one thing is, is, uh, you know, you and I have both watched it twice at this point, but, but, you know, Zodiac, for example, was a film, and, and I know I'm comparing this to Zodiac is sort of a, a weird yeah, what a weird comparison, but, you know, other than David Fincher, Zodiac's a film that I didn't quite align with on the first viewing, and it was only upon repeat viewings that I kind of absorbed the the amount of detail that was actually going at work here. So perhaps it will, for me personally, come back over time. I, I'm not sure if that's the case with you, Izzy, at this point, having done more of the research. Yeah, I think it's, it's just fairly, it's like weird, you know, because I mean, this is, I'm not going to exactly read what's in my video, but this is the, I, at the very end, I'm basically just going to say a lot of what I've said here. Mm -hmm. And I think a good example is just that Oscar scene where, you know, in the book that recently came out about Herman Mankiewicz, Mm -hmm. they describe how that night he didn't want to go to the awards because he was afraid he'd get too drunk. (laughs) And so that night he heard himself win on the radio and was dancing around the living room. Right. And I, keep thinking like would I have wanted to see that in this movie and I I was like yeah I yeah, think I yeah. would have because I think I would have to see that especially with Sarah yeah it would feel like um relief or yeah. like you felt you would feel like you're rooting for somebody who really like got something great done mm. and instead you have Gary Oldman like sort of mustering this like half-assed smile mm. um you know and like throwing a shot at Wells and to me like comparing and contrasting those visions of how this film could have ended or like how I could have felt about Mank in in that moment um, just feels disappointing. (laughs) Um, So that's what I mean about sort of thinking about the realism versus what was constructed and sort of feeling underwhelmed in post. The disappointment comes from comes from the knowledge. Yeah, uh, which is again. I, you I'm make sorry it sound that like we're we're traipsing through the Garden of Eden here. I mean, look, like uh, eating all the apples. I, the apple. I did not. I've just been looking You're the at snake. I've just been looking at leaves. I'm not the snake. I'm not offering you knowledge. I don't have any knowledge to offer you. Um, anyway, uh, 
I, the last thing I will say, I'm going to say a bad thing about the movie, uh, unless this is a historical accuracy, in which case good, but again, I don't care. Um, the, this is a constant problem in many films, but I just noticed this real quick before we wrap this up. Was Herman Mankiewicz's wife supposed to be like 30 years younger than him? No. Um, her, Gary Oldman is like 20 years older than mm. Herman Mankiewicz was at this time. Okay, so um, it was just sort so of like she's a, the right age. He is he's not. not. So it was a but, hand wave. But I, I think there's been a, like this is this has been floating around the internet this week because there's that scene where he says I'm 43 years old and you're like are you you're really like, laughing? <laughs> yeah, like it's laughable. But, I mean, but they should have at- they should have gotten on the case. Mel Burns, uh, Lane Britton, and Maurice uh, Siderman, the makeup artists from Citizen Kane. <laughs> and yeah, oh, they could have done a great job yelling no, no, him up. But, but but I think the and and it does go to the sort of the the way in which movies are you know like the acceptability of an older man versus the acceptability of a younger woman in a film mm-hmm. is very prevalent in the casting of of Mank. But there is a if you do look at photos of Herman Mankiewicz at this age, he does look twenty years older than he should be because of the alcohol the and smoking. Yeah, and right. you know, he he passed away some ten years later. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I, you know it's it's a sort of an interesting byproduct of both uh, the the time. It's you, a cross section watch... of accuracy and sexism, right? Matt, but I also just... think there's oh, like sorry, there's ahead. there's a kind of old that looks old because of damage. So yeah. again, to like reference Judy Garland, like Judy Garland looked twenty years older than she was, but she also looked like she was on meth, which she right. was. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas like Gary Oldman just looks like an old man. <laughs> Yeah. That's true. That's you're a hundred percent. Yeah, he doesn't look damaged. He looks just twenty years older. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, this has been the only podcast about the film Mank. Mank, Izzy, Mank of the Jungle. No, no, stop, <laughs> stop it. Da, 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 da. I mean, if you, if that's what you need to get joy, do, do yeah. it. Uh, Izzy, thank you so much for coming back for a three-peat on 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 this little uh, talkie show we do. My pleasure. So amazing to speak with you guys again. Um, when uh, when can uh, folks expect this drops this Sunday? Uh, will you have uh, your next uh, 25 video up or will that be coming later down the month? The next 25 Days of Actress video will be up on the 16th, I believe. Okay, so it'll be coming a little bit after. I have no idea when this Mank video is coming out, but this month at some point. (laughs) We will tweet it from the stars. Uh, Izzy, of course, running the phenomenal YouTube channel Be Kind Rewind. If you have not uh, subscribed, smashed the like button, and rung that bell, uh, you best do it right now. Um, because there is some awesome, fascinating... Again, Cinematic Jedi. I'm, that is a, a, an utterly a compliment. Uh, I'm putting that in my bio. You should. You should. Um, yeah. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, oh, and so where could folks find you on, on, the, on the Insta and the Twitters and the things, all things not YouTube? Uh, I am BK Rewind on Twitter and BK underscore Rewind on Instagram. Awesome. Uh, Shahir, when you... Oh, man, when you are not watching truly the MCU, (laughs) where can folks find you? Find me watching uh, Citizen Kane, The Trial, um, Othello, Macbeth, all of Orson Welles' movies, none of which uh, uh, Herman Mankiewicz wrote. Uh, also, oh, by the way, um, there is a film uh, that Preston Sturges wrote called The Power and the Glory, uh, which uh, Mankiewicz apparently 
produced the screenplay for or had some involvement with Preston Sturge's writing of, and it may have been kind of considered the, the template for what eventually became Citizen Kane. He calls it his prismatic look at uh, history, and it's entirely free on YouTube. So you could probably watch me, uh, well, you could probably watch or join me watching The there Power and the Glory uh, on my website, www.shahirdaud.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are a young Padawan looking up to the Jedi Masters and wondering one day, could that be me? Where can people find you? You can find me, sadly, not doing or doing not, uh, just knowing that all I can do is try at my website at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram and PSN, and of course, Emperor M-S-K on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing over at Extra Credits. I believe by the time this comes out, our history, uh, our end of the Samurai series will be complete. The fifth episode will be out. Uh, Spoiler alert, there is no Tom Cruise, despite the fact we talk about that entire era and a lot of stuff leading up to it. Uh, And we'll be just starting our Because Games Matter series, uh, where we take stories from the community and and prominent people uh, in the gaming and healthcare space and retell them uh, uh, how, how games have helped people um, in, in multiple facets in their lives. Uh, and I, it's my favorite time of the year to do this kind of stuff because it's, it's just nice to see like with all of the, the vitriol in the industry and the garbage that goes on with video games, uh, and, and communities and the like, uh, it's just so nice to also see, to finally see like I, what I feel like is a silent majority of, of people that really like interacting with the medium and that are not, uh, toxic. Um, (laughs) Speaking of people interacting with the medium, again, thank you everyone to who wrote in and sent us uh, uh, voice memos. Really appreciate that. Uh, it warmed the cockles of at least one of our hearts. That was and, my. That was me. Yeah, yeah, and at least the feet of the other one. Um, Interesting. <laughs> we are. Uh, this is episode three hundred. We are ever grateful to our listeners who chime in every week, who interact with us, uh, and write us in. Uh, you know, shameless plug at onlymoviepodcast at gmail or hit us up on Twitter at only movie pod um matt this has been a pleasure uh for 300 episodes and i'm i'm there's no plans on stopping at this point so uh thank you for uh being my compatriot in the cinematic journey through the a b c d e f g h i j k l m n p q r s t v w x y z c u universe all right. Yeah. All of these wow. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, we've been doing this for a long time. It's 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 one of my it, it's it's the it's the most exhausting <laughs> and rewarding thing I think I do. And and, and I don't mean exhausting. I, I, I think has a negative connotation. I, I honestly feel like. Being on this show challenges me to be a better film viewer. You always say you're a, you are a filmmaker. You are me. I'm a film taker, and I <laughs> just uh, I, I feel like I take in film much better after discussing it with you and great guests like Izzy and and all of you who are, we're going to hear from in in a couple minutes uh, or a couple minutes, uh, hopefully less than that. I'm not going to keep yammering uh, because <laughs> interacting with you and hearing what you all think about this, uh, about all the movies we talk about. Also email us in only podcast at gmail.com or tweet us at only movie pod to hear what you say about Mank. Um, it really does. It really does make this like uh, a, a wonderful labor of love. So thank you Shahir for uh, putting up with my ever present bullshit <laughs> um, and, and watching jujitsu. Izzy, we watched jujitsu. That's great. No. <laughs> no. I am no, sorry. It's no. I haven't seen it, so I'll just be positive about it. Yeah, okay. Sure. It's the worst thing I've ever done. 
was have us do that on, and that's saying something. Um, anyway, Oof. here comes uh, many of your lovely messages. Seriously, it, they were so they were so nice to hear, and um, yeah, we're looking forward to making a bunch more episodes for y'all in the future. Um, Izzy, once again, thank you so much for coming on this special, special episode. Thank you. And uh, yeah, Shahir, roll that beautiful bean footage. Hang on, let me just find the tape recorder. Let me just wind this oh, up. Oh, we're really gonna we're really gonna do a yeah, bit now. We time. could have yeah, just no, cut, just but just, now. Just, 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 like, 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 no. I fucking hate you. Yeah. <laughs> Hi guys, it's CJ Johnson here from Summary Sydney, Australia, and the Movie Land Podcast. Congratulations on 300 episodes. Here's looking forward to 338,647 more. You did it. You made enough podcasts to successfully fight off Xerxes at Thermopylae. But your legacy does not end here. No, this is only the start. The real podcast starts then. When will then be now? Soon. You have filled our subway rides and now subsequently our quarantines with lively conversation, thoughtful debate, and heaps of cinema literature. Grats to you and thank you for your continued awesomeness. Be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes! Your friends in fandom, Red and Anastasia. Congratulations, Matt and Shahir, on 300 episodes. What does the only podcast about movies mean to me? Well, quite a lot. I've been involved in lots of online communities, and this is the first one I've actually felt like I was a member of, and I'm tickled that it's yours. So once again, congratulations, and here's to 300 more. Hey guys, happy 300th episode. That's quite an achievement. Well done. Although, I don't know how seriously I can take you since you haven't seen The Castle. I mean, goodness gracious, that's a shocker. So um, you better rectify that, and I think you'll agree that'd be an episode that would go straight to the pool room. Um, well done. Keep it up. Love listening to you guys. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy 300 episode, dear Topam. Here's to 300 more. Hey guys, it's Wicked here to wish you a happy 300 episode. Regrettably, I wasn't there since the very beginning, but thank you for being a part of my cinema loving life. Matt, I hope you're happy, and I'm sorry that this isn't 15 seconds short. Grape nuts and soy milk, pepperoni and pineapple, banana and peanut butter, Matt and Shahir. Some pairings are historic, but not all stand the test of time, so I congratulate you both on your 300th episode and look forward to thousands more to come. A quick story. Last year I was doing some soul-searching in Spain, episode 9 of a certain saga was nearly upon us, and I was feeling a bit homesick. And what really helped was being able to cozy up with my favorite movie podcast pals as they had enlightening, eloquent, and oft pedantic conversations about episodes one through eight. Thank you both so much. I'm wishing you and all the movie watchers out there the very best, Jacob. Hello, my engineer. You'll have to excuse me for being out of breath because I'm doing this while I walk to work. But it's Laura, one of your Canberra Australian listeners, probably the only one that I know of. Um, first, well, uh, you know, it's time I sent a voice message because 300 episodes is a big deal. I think I've been listening to you guys since like 2016, which is insane because it means I've pretty much been here through my whole film degree, which I am now finished. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Um, 
I mean, I, anytime I watch a movie that I don't have anyone to talk to about, I pretty much just can rely on you guys either having an episode about it, or I can literally I just email in and tell you all my thoughts and we just have a talk about it. So I feel like at this point, you guys are just like my film friends that just happen to live in New York that no one else knows about, but that's fine. You know, I'm not crazy. You're real, right? Anyways, congrats on 300. I hope that there is many, many more because I just love the way you guys do the podcast. I love that it's not always just about whether you like or didn't like it. It's just about the film and the conversations that the film we're trying to have. And I know this. So keep going. Love your work. Um, this is what I sound like. So enjoy. Happy 300th. Guys, you guys are such good podcasters. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, I, such seamless tosses. Wow. <laughs> such seamless. <laughs> so seamless. We've been We're doing like, this too long. 